This is hell. First, Richard, please tell us what the intro music was today. It was a song called I Have the Password to Your Shell Account. By a group called Barcelona. Oh, sweet. I like that. That was very good. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. And like our history here in the United States, the so-called decline and fall of the Roman Empire too often erases the victims of their repeated imperial victories and revivals when it was faced with challenges. In fact, the decline and fall of Rome has often been invoked as a lesson for nations throughout history, starting with Rome and moving forward to this very day. The Romans honored their history and its heroes, and we have inherited a history that tells us we to beware decadence, moral decline, and above all, outsiders. However, not all Roman historians saw Roman history that way. What they saw in the empire's repeated renewals to internal and external obstacles is people working together collaboratively, collaboratively to save their beloved Rome and succeeding. But that's not the history that is far too often invoked by leaders from Charlemagne to Napoleon to Mussolini and on to today's leaders in the 21st century, 2200 years after world history's largest empire began. Not that those lessons from Roman history were actually based on an accurate retelling of Roman history, but that doesn't seem to matter. Seemingly, the simple invocation of the Roman Empire immediately gives any argument authority and gravitas that, for whatever reason, does not even need to be backed up by historical evidence. We'll do our best at trying to have a better understanding of what the Roman Empire was, what its historians have said about it, and what the Roman Empire is in political rhetoric today in a few minutes when we speak with historian Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Edward is the Alciviatus Vasiliatus Endowed Chair and Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego. His previous books include Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, and others, including the final pagan generation. Edward's writing often appears at the Los Angeles Review of Books. His most recent article posted last month there is entitled, Has America Lost Its First Principles? Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast this Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And Richard will tell us what's happening on This Is Hell next week. I'll tell you about our new schedule here at This Is Hell and why we have a new schedule. And I have a very, very difficult, very hard question to ask all of you, a question more hellish than any question from hell we have ever asked on our show. It's an important question, so please stay tuned in because we desperately need your advice and input. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you over the past two weeks while we are away on summer break? Yeah, not a whole lot. I uh, got a few uh, crazy projects done, but I do want to say, man, I loved the interview yesterday. That oh, was, really? That was awesome. The one on Afghanistan? Yes. Really? Oh, that was great. Did you get any feedback? Yeah, I did. I got a few people like, sending me emails saying that that was like the most informative yes. uh, discussion they'd heard on Afghanistan yet. Like, why aren't more people talking to that lady? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Afghanistan hyphen analyst.com please check out their organization that is where to get the best information on what's happening in afghanistan did you uh weather the storm last night 
I did weather the storm. It was very enjoyable. I was, saw. Oh man, it was so awesome that a cold front came through. Oh yeah, it was really great. I saw a far more intense storm that I will be telling people about on Patreon this week. I saw a straight line storm, which is a thunderstorm that does not rotate. And it can gust up to 100 miles an hour, and I was hit directly in the face with it when I was away on vacation. I'll be sharing that story. Yeah, I thought we were going to get some micro tornadoes last night. I know, I, I did too. I could see the circling of the clouds or whatever, and but just didn't happen. I love huge storms. What's new by me is that I am not. I am now an ordained minister, and not one but two religions, because I've been asked by my niece to be the officiant which is a weird word, at their wedding, as I am not married and have no plans to ever get married despite being with the same person for 34 years. I got no problem with monogamy. In fact, I I wouldn't have it any other way. But all the licensing and vows and state and religious intervention, the ceremony and rewards for making a commitment to only have sex with this person for the rest of your life all seems a bit too much to me. So I asked my niece why she wanted me to officiate her wedding, And her and her fiancé both said, because we love you, and that's good enough for me. But more important than any of that, Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what is Chuck's password? What is Chuck's password? And if anybody guesses this accurately, I'll have to change my password, so please do not make a good guess. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any grant money we do not have any commercial sponsors. All we have is you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can send it to us via direct message on Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but it might be a little too late for that. I really got to get access to a computer here in the studio. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Jeff Dorchin will now be delivering his moment of truth every Wednesday. And beginning this week, we'll also be naming the question from hell winner every Wednesday during today's moment of truth. Jeff exposes the souls of pinker folk. I don't know what that means. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. So this is how began airing way back in 1996. We were originally a one-hour summer replacement program at Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. And over time, we grew to be a regular year-round show that was one, then two, then three, and eventually four hours long, airing live and without any commercial interruption or any break of any kind, every Saturday morning beginning at 9 a.m. Chicago time. And we still air every Saturday morning for four hours on WNUR, as well as an abbreviated one-hour version on both WLPN, FM, Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side, and on KRFP Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. But starting last year, in January 2021, just in time for the pan- in January 2020, sorry, just in time for the pandemic, We began doing one-hour shows every Monday through Thursday, streaming live from our own studio here above a pool table in a bar. We then took those four one-hour shows and edited them together into a four-hour program for our world broadcast premiere on WNUR on Saturday mornings. 
Without this studio, we would not have been able to do any shows at all from March of last year until June of this year. And with the Delta variant uh, surging right now, I seriously doubt we would still be able to do any shows without our own studio. A studio that we have because of your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Now, you may have noticed this week and over the past couple of months, the shows were not only one hour, four days a week. They often far exceeded an hour in length. There's a couple of reasons for that. First is that the amount of material we want to share does not fit in a single hour. So instead, over the past few months, the shows have been anywhere from 70 to 90 minutes in length. That means instead of producing four hours of content each week, we are up to five and a half hours. And in our Patreon podcast, add that in, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we're doing six and a half hours of radio every week, far more content than you get from any other podcast. But we are a radio show as well. I did the math, and that's a 37.5% increase in content from what we had been doing for decades at WNUR. Unfortunately, the daily grind really really got the best of me both mentally and physically over the past 20 months and the pandemic did not help so this is how we'll continue to bring you four hours of content every week plus an additional fifth hour if you subscribe to our patreon podcast but instead of doing 60 minute shows four times a week we're going to be doing 80 minute shows three times a week again plus the patreon podcast on fridays We've only done this for one week now, but I can tell you after only one week, this is a far more sustainable version of This Is Hell, one that won't actually kill me. This all means now listen to This Is Hell live every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for 80 minutes each day, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Subscribe and listen to our Patreon podcast on Fridays at the same time at patreon.com slash this is hell and you can still hear all four hours of this is hell saturday mornings on wnur 89.3 fm as well as an abbreviated version on both lumpen radio and radio free moscow in moscow idaho coming up the dangerous way in which the history of the roman empire has been invoked since the beginning of the roman empire richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what is chuck's password what is chuck's password the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever this is hell swag you want you can see all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support and again you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page or you can tweet it to us eh, it's probably a little bit too late to send me an email because i don't really have access to my email here in studio which is something that we want to change and we can change with your support but again we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth we'll also tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show all right, tomorrow, or, um, sorry, on Friday's Patreon podcast, what's happening on next week's shows? Maybe we'll be telling you that. I'm not too sure if we have anybody booked yet for next week. And uh, yeah, I got that horrible, horrible question to ask everybody, a question I really have been avoiding asking. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. The Roman Empire is often invoked to rationalize and justify many policies that may not otherwise be accepted. By simply connecting whatever your issue is with the Roman Empire, whether that comparison is historically accurate or not, gives the idea an air of authenticity and even righteousness. So why does the Roman Empire still have such sway over political rhetoric to this day? 
here to help us understand is historian Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Welcome to This is Hell, Edward. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for being on this show. This is a fascinating book. Edward also, his writing often appears at the LA Review of Books. His most recent article posted there last month is entitled, Has America Lost Its First Principles? You remind us that on January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump's inaugural address laid out an apocalyptic scene of American carnage amid, quote, poverty in our inner cities, rusted up factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation and a faltering education system. Then Trump uh, pivoted saying, from this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Together, we will make America strong again, wealthy again, proud again, safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. And you add the American carnage speech, as it's known, draws upon a deep tradition of manufacturing the perception of widespread decline in order to destabilize the present. And you add that the approach is not unique to the United States. Is this kind of destabilizing American carnage-like talk more than anything about undermining or ending recently won freedoms and expansions of democracy? Is the idea the problem with the world is that it has become too free and too democratic? Yeah, I think that the uh, most interesting thing and the, the most fascinating thing about this is that the process of making a better society, making a more inclusive society and making a more democratic society is something that makes people uncomfortable. Um, and and when people are uncomfortable about these sorts of things, uh, the real challenge that we face is politicians who try to weaponize that discomfort. And I think what the American carnage speech does is it highlights not so much a reality of decline as a sense that things are moving too quickly for certain parts of the population. And I think what Trump intuitively sensed was uh, this is an opportunity for people like him to come in and do things that otherwise wouldn't be acceptable. Uh, And when you mobilize people's discomfort and create a sense that that discomfort is grounded on actual changes, actual realities uh, that make conditions worse, you have the opportunity to remake society in a way that otherwise would be impossible. And the American Carnage speech is a a very good example of a reaction to a society that has been moving in a specific direction uh, and the discomfort that it causes. So why does the invocation of the Roman Empire work so well at rationalizing the unwillingness to accept societal change? I think what Rome offers us is a society that's incredibly dynamic. Um, the, the history of the Roman Empire is something that, you know, it lasts for almost 2,200 years. This is a state that starts basically in the Bronze Age, and it ends with gunpowder and cannonballs in 1453 AD. So it's around for a very, very long time, and no state can survive for that long without changing. Um, and the way that Rome changes in many fashions and at many moments uh, comes about from both territorial expansion, but also an inclusiveness and an expansion of its citizen body. And each time Rome brings in new people and brings in new influences and brings in new languages or religions, there's a reaction because people who were already there feel like their status as members of a polity that has been successful is now being challenged by people who really didn't have enough to do with the success of that state. And so what Roman politicians realize is that discomfort is a mobilizing tool if you can tap into it. 
Uh, and so frequently across those 2200 years, you have politicians in Rome who step forward and say, these changes that are making you uncomfortable are bad. And the only way to address these things that make you feel uncomfortable is through radical steps that really shake up the system. Uh, and so when Rome is a republic, almost every year you have a politician of some sort coming forward and saying, what you are upset about is real and only I can fix it because only I am not invested in this system and I can overthrow the things that you are uncomfortable with. Once Rome becomes an empire, the stakes in a way become, become even more serious because in the Republic, if you are a change candidate, what you're doing primarily is replacing somebody through an election. But when you're in the empire, you do not replace people through elections because there are no elections. Instead, what you're doing is probably killing a reigning emperor or executing people around that emperor. Uh, and so the changes are always there, um, but the, the consequences of people pushing this kind of change become in a way even more serious as you move from a democracy to an authoritarian state, but they never go away. So is nativism grounded in the Roman Empire? Do nativists often employ the Roman Empire to rationalize their beliefs? Absolutely. And this was actually in Roman propaganda as well. But I think the interesting thing about um, the Roman story is the nativism that we see, uh, it changes uh, in such a way that some of the people who are initially framed as the outsiders who are overthrowing the Roman way of doing things become the ultimate insiders. So the first time that we have a record of actually someone's words when they are using this nativist language in Rome occurs in the second century BC when the um, Roman politician Cato the Elder asks for Romans to uh, rise up and expel Greeks from the city of Rome. Uh, and there has been a relatively significant immigration of Greeks into the city of Rome at that point. The interesting thing is when the empire actually ends in 1453 AD, so almost 1700 years later, the people who are Romans and call themselves Romans and are described by everybody in that world as Romans are Greek speakers, and they live in Constantinople. And so what you see in Rome is nativism is there. It's there for most of Roman history, but the people who are Roman change. Uh, and I think this is something that's really important for us to understand when we see this nativist rhetoric that invokes things like the, the Roman Empire. Um, the people who are the natives, the people who are the, the center or the core, um, the people who possess what is seen as the legitimate identity, uh, those people, that is not a stable group. Um, and the people who are at one point outside of that core group can become that core group over time. And what Rome shows um, more clearly than maybe any society is the people who are initially attacked as the, the outsiders become the people who carry on the Roman tradition and carry on the Roman state after the state is no longer in Italy. And you point out how in the Philippines, President Rodrigo Duterte responded to the perception of widespread crime and drug use by tolerating or even encouraging more than 12,000 extrajudicial killings. The murderous spree has only decreased or only increased Duterte's popularity. Prominent Duterte critic, a past guest on our show, Walden Bello, told The Atlantic that, quote, I don't know if Filipino lives are actually better than before, but perception is that they are. They're pro-Duterte because they feel he's cleaned up the place. You add Bello here points to something important. Descriptions of decline often require very few supporting facts. They are emotional things driven by stories rather than data. How sustainable 
are stories compared to facts? Do politics or a perception based on stories inevitably become challenged by facts and eventually fail? Because that is the liberal belief that that is what will happen. Yeah, and I would say if you ask most people in the West that question 10 years ago, we would say that facts win out. Um, I think what we're seeing is facts can win out, but we have to be very aware of the fact of the reality that facts need a story behind them. Um, just data points do not persuade people because data points are not things that you become emotionally invested in. Um, and, and I think what Bella points to is really, really important. The emotional investment is something that gives you, in a sense, a stake in an interpretation of reality. And simple facts do not eliminate that stake that you have in the interpretation of the world around you. But facts that are combined with a story can do that. Um, and the challenge I think that we're all facing now is these stories that have been coming up in the last five to 10 years are really compelling for certain people in our population because those stories explain something that they can't otherwise explain. And facts by themselves cannot overcome that. But getting people invested in uh, a story that gives meaning to those basic facts can overcome that. Uh, and that's, I think, the challenge that, that everyone who's a, a backer of liberal democracy really needs to face. We need to explain why liberal democracy matters. We need to explain what the story is um, that gives the embrace of truth uh, a power that we need to respect. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that a lot of us are struggling with, is what is the story that we're telling that can counteract these stories based on almost a mythologizing idea of the past and present? What is the way that we can factually ground a story that is compelling um, and, and people can get emotionally invested in it? And we're struggling to do this. Do you think we have left an age of reason behind and we're entering a new age of affect? I think that what we maybe have learned is that the age of reason um, was supported by a story and, and we embraced that story and the story of the founding fathers and the tools that the founding fathers used in the United States were tools that were based on um, rational ideas, but also a kind of narrative of what it meant to belong to a country and why those rational ideas underpinned something that was important. Um, I don't think that we are moving out of an age of reason, but I think we, we need to come up with ways to explain the process and explain the projects that we're embarking upon and why they matter. Uh, and the Founding Fathers had a very good sense of why their project mattered. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people who embrace liberal democracy, we need to figure out how to explain this better, You know, why freedom matters. Uh, why respect for the rights of everyone in a society matters. Uh, and what happens when you walk away from this and embrace a kind of relativism based on emotion instead of facts, reality, and basic principles? Do the stories of Rome's decline and fall reflect more the time they were told than they do any evidential reality-based history? Are they more about the time within which they were told or the time they're supposedly talking about? This is, I think, the great challenge. And this is one of the things that I really confronted when writing the book, because Rome does fall. It does decline. 
it goes from a society that at one point controlled all of the territory from Scotland to Saudi Arabia, um, all of the Mediterranean basin. It would be a country now, probably the fourth largest country in the world, and it contained a quarter of the world's population, and it doesn't exist anymore. And so objectively, this is a place that declined and fell. Uh, and so as a historian, you have to acknowledge that, you know, the decline is real, the fall is real. But what's remarkable is the idea of Roman decline is always there, even when Rome is expanding, even when its society is getting stronger, even when its economy is growing. And so there is a, a balance we have to strike between the stories that are told and the reality that a society can, and in Rome's case, does collapse. Uh, and I think what we begin to see is sometimes the decline is completely made up. It's completely manufactured. So in the second century BC, when Cato the Elder is saying that Greeks are bringing Rome down, this is made up. There is no reality there at all. But there are also moments where there are real problems that need solutions. And what Rome shows is there are two ways to approach real problems that need solutions. One of them is very destructive. And that's to say, we have a real problem and it's this person's fault. And so this person needs to pay the penalty for causing that problem. That approach makes you feel good, but it doesn't fix the problem. But there's another approach that, that you already hinted at in the early part of our conversation, where Romans can acknowledge there's a problem and then someone can bring the society together to try to address that problem. And I think that's the lesson that Rome provides that we can take away from this vast um, extent of Roman history. When people come together to address a problem, you have a new story. You have a story of a society that's functional. You have a society that is able to collectively acknowledge what issues it confronts and come up with ways that bring everybody on board to try to solve those problems. And this is the way you create that new narrative. This is the way that you can acknowledge reality, acknowledge facts, but also get people invested in a process of fixing the issues that really do confront society, not the made up issues that somebody has created to try to gain political authority, but the real issues that are affecting people's livelihoods, people's freedoms, and people's property. Uh, and when a society can come together to do that, you create a story that says, we as a society work, our world works, our polity works, and we as citizens can come together to solve the real problems we face. And that's a better story than a story that says there's something wrong and it's these people's faults, because it's true. Why is Roman history so malleable and able to be shaped to whatever time and circumstances within which it is being told? Is it simply, as you were just pointing out, the vastness of Roman history that you can easily pick and choose what you'd like to uh, you know, uh, use and exploit for your own, arg our own argument? Yeah, I think the vastness is an important part of that because Romans were able to draw upon that vast history repeatedly. Um, so it's interesting. There's a, a very small, when the Roman Empire is about to collapse in the 14th century AD, there's a very small recovery that they enjoy. And the, the people who are writing the materials that celebrate this recovery, they start comparing the Roman emperor who in effect basically you know, conquered a couple of parts of what's now modern Greece, um, they compare him to Scipio Africanus uh, and to some of the great leaders of the Roman Republic who conquered vast swaths of territory around the Mediterranean. And they can do this because that's their history. 
uh, there is a uh, there is a continuum that links that emperor to people from 1600 years ago. Uh, and so when the Romans do this, it gives us, in a sense, liberty to do this as well. You know, if you can live in the 14th century AD and say, I am directly connected to this person who lived in the third century BC, well, why is it that we 600, 700 years later can't do the same thing and say we're connected to this Roman history as well? And so the Romans themselves, I think, give us liberty to pick and choose elements from this really long um, history of this really, really enduring society and pick what we want from it to make the point that we want to make. But there's a different thing that we can do that Romans didn't do. I mean, Romans, when they introduce these stories from their past, they see their history as a kind of cyclical thing where Rome endures some sort of crisis and it recovers from it. And when you have 2,200 years of history, you can always find a crisis that kind of looks like what you're looking at right now and chart a recovery that is similar in some way to what you want your society to do. Um, and what we have instead is a story that comes out of really Edward Gibbon in the 18th century that focuses on the fact that Rome is no more. And so for us, this isn't about recovering from crisis. It's instead a crisis that leads to the end of something, something great, something that achieved tremendous things, but eventually no longer existed. And so for us, the fall of Rome becomes a tool to highlight not how we can recover from a problem, but how the problem can kill us, how the problem can eliminate our society. And in some ways, that's even more dangerous than what the Romans were doing, because we're not promising recovery at all. We're instead highlighting a really serious sort of societal uh, consequence that comes about if we don't address whatever problem someone has identified. But why would so many nations look to the Roman Empire for lessons when they don't have necessarily imperial aspirations, when they're certainly not the size of the greatest empire the world has ever seen? So why why would they look to the Roman Empire for lessons? Does that imply that all nations have imperial aspirations? No, I think when they look at the Roman Empire, what they look at is a really big and successful political project that died. Um, and it's in a way, I think, especially when you're talking about Western Europe and, and North America, it's the most famous successful political project that endured for a long time, but ultimately died. Uh, and so I think that the, the connection that some societies feel to Rome is very immediate. I mean, if you're in Mussolini's Italy, um, you really do live in a society where your leader is framing fascist Italy as a direct kind of revivification of the Roman Empire. But in a lot of other societies, they're looking at Rome more as a, a cautionary tale for what a political project, how a political project can end um, and what the consequences of it ending can be. And so I don't think imperial aspirations need to go along with that, though in many of these contexts, there are imperial aspirations that do go along with it. But instead, I think what Rome, what Rome has become is a political project that succeeds for a long time and succeeds spectacularly for a long time, but then dies. Uh, and it's the most famous one. And so the examples that we draw upon um, are examples that relate not just to imperial enterprises, but to political enterprises more generally. Uh, and this, I think, is why it's such a powerful cautionary tale that lots of people use even if they live in a society that does not really have uh, an empire or isn't a particularly large polity.
Have those who use the rhetoric of decline and fall of the Roman Empire known that their rhetoric contributed to divisiveness and decline and done it anyway? Is the point to incite divisions and decline? Does that con- and does that contribute to the end of the current political project that they're trying to warn people is declining? Yeah, absolutely it does. Uh, absolutely it does. And I think in some ways that's the point. Um, what this rhetoric does is it undermines contemporary conditions. Um, it says in essence that the world around you is worse than what came before it. And because it's worse and you feel uncomfortable, you need to do something about it. And that means that the way things have functioned in the past and the status quo is is something we cannot endure because it will be fatal to our political project. And so there is a very real understanding from people using this rhetoric that it is designed to undermine basic social conventions. It's designed to undermine the uh, understanding that we have about how rights and laws and citizenship should function. It's designed to be radical because it's taking a set of problems that exist in a political system and saying, in essence, the political system is too broken to fix them. Uh, And the examples that they draw from Rome are examples when the political system struggled to address real problems. And Rome becomes then the metaphor in a way for the consequences of the failures of our system to address the real issues that people are concerned about. Um, And in the United States, this is a rhetoric that we see, we have seen over and over again in the last 50 years. Um, It's been used by the right, it's also been used by the left, but it's used frequently to try to challenge basic conventions about how society works so that something radical that otherwise wouldn't be possible can be brought forward as a potential solution. And you write that when using this rhetoric of the decline and fall and blaming others, that was, quote, not the general response in the 160s and 170s of the common era. The emperor Marcus Aurelius reacted to the deaths of so many soldiers from plague by recruiting slaves and gladiators to the legions. He filled the abandoned farmsteads and depopulated cities by inviting migrants from outside the empire to settle within its boundaries, cities that lost large numbers of Aristocrats replaced them by various means, even filling vacancies in their councils with the sons of freed slaves. So did Rome succeed when it confronted challenges through inclusion and collaborative working and fail and fall when it reacted to societal changes with divisiveness? Or is that the story for our times while we are suffering with COVID? I think Marcus gives us a very important way to think about how we recover from the real damage that COVID has done in our world. Um, because these plagues, you know, they, the plague in the 160s was smallpox. And so it's much more serious than, um, than COVID. And it's smallpox hitting a population that had never seen smallpox before. So the death tolls are going to be really dramatic. I mean, I think we estimate between 10 and 20% of the Roman population dies from this. So it's a really significant problem. Um, And what's interesting is when later historians write about the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a reign when you not only have this massive death from plague, but you have all kinds of other problems, too, along the military, um, along the frontiers, the military is struggling to maintain Roman control of its territory. There's political upheaval in the 170s. Uh, And yet when our historians write about this, they write about the age of Marcus as a golden age. And it's not because it was a wonderful time to be alive. I mean, the historians who are writing this lived through it. They know how bad it was. 
But what the historians are saying is Marcus understood that in a moment like that, he could blame other people, but he chose not to. And Marcus himself writes how he addresses this problem. Um, Marcus went and identified all of the people who have potential contributions that they could make, and he asked them to do only what they were capable of doing. And then he celebrated the things that they achieved. He didn't focus on their failures. He didn't ask them to do things that were impossible or things that you know they were not capable of doing. Instead, he identified their capacities and he brought society together in such a way that everybody contributed to Rome's recovery from this, this plague uh, to the best degree that they were capable of contributing. They weren't asked to do things they were incapable of doing, but they were celebrated for doing the things well that they were able to do well. And so the golden age of Marcus is not an age of material prosperity. The economy shrinks. Um, it's not an age of good feeling. You know, people are terrified of dying of plague. Uh, it's not an age of military achievement. The empire is struggling really to maintain its frontiers. Uh, it's instead an age of Rome coming together and feeling like everybody across this vast empire is doing something to address these problems. And so I think what Marcus shows us is the power of creating this story that collectively we are going to address the issues around us to the degree that we are capable and we are going to celebrate everybody's contribution and celebrate their successes rather than their failures. And this is how you create a society that's inclusive. Um, when you're bringing people in from outside of the Roman frontiers and settling them in Rome and giving them a stake in helping Rome recover, you're binding them to society in a very tangible way because you can see the results of their efforts. Uh, and so what Marcus understood was um, inclusion needs to actually be inclusive. There has to be a project that everyone is working on uh, and that helps facilitate a process of inclusion of faci and facilitate a process of bringing people in and making them invested in the success of the society that they are joining. Um, but also it makes the Romans who are, who were already there understand the importance of that inclusiveness. But Edward, well, we're speaking with uh, historian Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Edward, we, we've had many people on our show, many guests on our show, who have argued that the United States is in decline, but they simultaneously see the solution in collective collaborative action. Can talk of decline undermine collective, cooperative, collaborative actions or sensibilities? It can. Um, and it depends what you're trying to do with this story of decline. Uh, I think that if you are telling the story of decline, and again, we'll use the 160s as an example, there is a story that's told that um, Marcus Aurelius's co-emperor causes the plague by, by uh, going into a sacred space in a temple and the gods get angry and he causes this plague. Um, it, what would have been possible is you take out the anger that you have about the plague occurring on the people associated with that co-emperor. Marcus doesn't do that. Um, what Marcus does instead is says, we have real problems. Um, but the way to solve those problems is not to look backwards at who caused them or blame people and punish them for causing the problems. The way to move forward is to address those problems and solve those issues. And so it is certainly possible to say that things like economic inequality in the United States are real problems. Um, I know when when Jeff Bezos went to space, my daughter is a 
high school student um, was on TikTok and there's a petition on TikTok saying that people shouldn't let Bezos back on the earth. He should stay in space. Um, that's a way of addressing economic inequality, singling out people who have benefited from it and doing things to them that make us feel better about the conditions that were created by their actions. Um, but it doesn't in a way solve the problem. It makes us feel better, but it doesn't make society more equal. Instead, we can focus on policies that can address the issues and solve or try to solve the real underlying problems. And those policies have substantial tangible effects in making the society function better. Targeting individuals doesn't do anything to make the society function better. It just makes people feel a little bit better temporarily. So I think that decline is something that is a powerful tool if it's ground, if it is really a decline, if there really is an issue that has gotten worse, it's important to acknowledge that. But it's important to acknowledge as well that the way to solve these problems is to focus on policies, not people, to focus on ways forward, not punishing people um, for the conditions that they created in the past. Uh, and I think what Rome shows is when you look forward, you can address these issues. But if you look backwards and you target people instead of policies, you cause division, you cause conflict, and you make it less possible to address the problems you're really concerned about. And you write that the Roman legacy particularly energized 19th and early 20th century Italian politicians. Giuseppe Mazzini, one of the leaders of the revolution that briefly forced Pope Pius IX out of Rome in 1848, believed that a Roman state, quote, alone could rise, die, and then rise again with a new mission. Rome, he wrote, was the verb of history, which is a great phrase, that had twice unified the world, first in the Rome of the Caesars and again as the Rome of the Popes, even though Mazzini countenanced violent revolution, he could not have imagined the level of violence that the idea of a revivified Rome would later inspire from Benito, Mussolini, and other Italian fascists. Why does an invocation of the Roman Empire so often lead to fascism or fascistic tendencies? What is it about the Roman Empire and its decline and fall that fuels fascism instead of, as Mazzini hoped, liberalism? Yeah, I think the the path from Mazzini to Mussolini is really fascinating because Mazzini really did believe that what Rome creates is an integrative society. It's a way forward that, that unifies people. And Mussolini, of course, did not see things in the same way as Mazzini. Um, and what I think Mussolini was able to do was to capitalize on a different idea of what Rome is. You know, his idea of Rome is this idea of Rome as a violent conquering society. And Rome was that. Mazzini's idea is Rome as a kind of um, enlightened and integrative society. And Rome was that too. Uh, and I think the challenge is both of those things can be invoked to talk about Rome. You know, for our founding fathers, Rome was the model for a representative democracy that could include the voices of everybody across this very big and very diverse landmass that would eventually become the United States. And they understood that a Roman modeled republic was something that could expand along with the country and integrate people along with the territorial expansion of the country. Um, but other people looked at Rome as an expansionary power that was an imperial power. And that also works for American history and it works for what Mussolini was trying to do. Both of those versions of Rome relate to aspects of the Roman past, but both of them also sort of misrepresent the complexity of what that society was. 
Uh, and so I think that that leads you both to um, the kind of inclusive, idealistic view of Mazzini and the imperialist, idealistic view of Mussolini. Both of those are really kind of radical, um, selective interpretations of what Rome was. And you can use elements from the Roman past to point to both of those ways of thinking. But to say that Rome was the same thing as fascist Italy misrepresents what Rome was. Um, it becomes, in a way, a tool for Mussolini to justify doing things that otherwise no one in Italy would have accepted. Uh, and some of the violence that Mussolini did is very well known. I mean, the invasion of Ethiopia is uh, a horrible, horrible example of imperialism um, taken to the worst extensions uh, that it can go. But some of the things that Mussolini did in the city of Rome are also incredibly destructive. He destroyed entire neighborhoods to excavate what's now uh, the areas around the Imperial Forum and the areas around uh, the Theater of Marcellus. He, he displaced thousands of people and destroyed houses that had been there for centuries, simply in the uh, idea that exposing this area made Rome more, more um, ancient Rome more connected to the modern city and enabled his regime to really make this claim of Roman renewal. So we, I think, need to see that Rome is both more complicated uh, than we imagine, and also because of that, a tool that can be used in a simplistic way to justify things that otherwise um, people would not tolerate at all. So to what degree was this uh, remaking of Rome under Mussolini, where he did destroy neighborhoods to reveal uh, ancient archaeological sites, to what degree was this not only an unveiling of the past, but an erasing of the present? Because that seems to go along with the idea of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, not necessarily ha you know, having to have any evidence of actual decline taking place. So to what degree is this an erasing of the present as well as a revealing of the past. No, I think it, uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly what Mussolini believed he was doing. And if you read some of the materials written by the fascist architects um, who created this space, and if, we, if you go to the forum now, you see all of this empty space and you see a giant road that goes from the Colosseum uh, down through the middle of, of the remains of the forum. That road was created by Mussolini as a giant triumphal sort of procession area. And when the conquest of, of Ethiopia was completed, the fascist troops walked down that in a kind of celebration again of a, a new Roman triumph. And the fascist architects who did this said that in essence, um, what we are trying to do is uh, expose the past so that people can walk through it and be reminded of what it was, but then also be reminded of what the fascist present and future is going to be like. And so for Mussolini, revealing the past was in a way charting also a, a interpretation of the present and a path for the future. Um, but it is completely, it's completely fictionalized. And in some cases, what Mussolini did was um, terribly ill-conceived. So the, the Mausoleum of Augustus was a concert hall in the city of Rome, and Mussolini stripped the entire place out to get back to what he saw as the ancient core of that building. And all that was left was some brickwork. Uh, and it just sat there empty because the space went from something that was completely useful to something that's completely useless. Uh, and in some ways, I think that's a great metaphor for what Mussolini was doing. You know, he was creating a space that was supposed to bring back the glory of Rome, but in many ways it emptied out a lot of the vibrancy and 
um, cultural dynamics of modern Italy. Uh, and so the idea of embracing and revivifying the past is something that also simultaneously destroyed a lot of the 20th century Italian presence. Um, and I think Mussolini was comfortable with that. Um, but we, I think, can look back and say that this is not a project of rebuilding so much as it's a project of using the past to destroy. Uh, and the rhetoric of decline very frequently allows us to create these projects where we claim we're rebuilding something that's connected to the past, but really what we're doing is destroying the present. And you write the beginning in the 15th century, a different way of thinking about Roman decline began to emerge, starting with the work of Renaissance Florentines like Leonardo Bruni, the completed story of the empire emerged as a tool that enabled contemporaries to understand the particular moment in which they were living. Bruni did not just point to the moment when the empire ended. He also identified the onset of its decline. Bruni explained, quote, the decline of the Roman Empire ought to be placed at the time when giving up its liberty, Rome began to serve the emperors. And when liberty departed, so did virtue. Was this a view that looked up to Roman culture, but also recognized the failures of empire, both embracing the artistic contributions while understanding that imperialism is flawed? And how slippery of a slope is it to have appreciation for cultural contributions during the Roman Empire to an admiration of imperialism? Yeah, I think this is a great point um, because when Americans and people in the 21st century think of Rome and think of the fall of Rome, we think of Edward Gibbon's model, which is a Rome where the high point for Gibbon is the empire. But for people before Gibbon, everyone from Bruni to, to Montesquieu, the high point was the Republic. The high point of Rome was representative democracy and imperialism by eliminating the dynamics of representative democracy. Uh, that was what ultimately led to the decline of Rome for them. And so Gibbon gives us a story that focuses on imperialism. It focuses on the empire. It, in a sense, says that Rome actually was better under the authoritarian rule of the first emperors than it was under the dynamic rule of the republic. But what Bruni and Machiavelli and Montesquieu and a whole host of other people from the 15th century to the 18th century point to is the idea of political freedom as the thing that made Rome great. Uh, and so for them, the, um, the legacy of Rome that is most important is the legacy of a free democratic republic, a representative democracy. And for them, um, the contribution that Rome makes is cultural, but it's also quite tangible. Uh, it provides a way to think about a free society, a society that is not dominated by a king or an emperor or an authoritarian leader, but instead a society that is governed by its people. And so for them, the story of Rome um, is a story of the power of representative democracy. And Bruni is talking about this in Florence when the Florentine Republic is um, you know, struggling in many ways to beat back uh, challenges to its representative democracy. Montesquieu is writing this on you know, a couple of generations before the French Revolution when it's very clear to him that the political structures that he's living under are not working in the way that the French people need them to work. Uh, and so they are idealizing a view of representative democracy that Rome embodies. Uh, and they are fully aware and, and extremely uncomfortable with a society that becomes authoritarian. Um, for them, Rome is a cautionary tale of what happens 
to a dynamic society when it becomes authoritarianism or it becomes authoritarian and it loses that dynamism. Uh, and so in that way, I think we, we have another interesting way to interact with Rome. Uh, we have been for the last 250 years interacting with this society as a successful empire. But before Gibbon, before this, this work in the 18th century, Rome was primarily interacted with as a successful representative democracy and an inspiration for how you can incorporate people and give political rights and give stakes in decision-making to a group of people who are citizens, but not dictators. You also write that during the Republic, Romans interacted with their past by listening to eulogies, singing songs, and attending plays that celebrated the virtues and condemned the follies of their ancestors. Under the empire, institutions like the imperial cult and regular festivals for uh, divinized emperors in Roman calendars sustained popular awareness of the men like Augustus, Vespasian, and Trajan, who had restored Rome after real or imagined crises. Medieval Romans also regularly commemorated historical events like the Roman victory over the Avars and Persians in 626 that saved Constantinople and reversed the tide of Heraclius's Persian War. These public events collectively reinforced the idea of Rome as a uniquely resilient society and credited those responsible for its recovery. So does the invocation of Rome work simply because Rome was the first to celebrate its past or the first that we have written documentation showing this reverence for its history? I think this is a great question. I think in Western Europe, um, one of the things that is important uh, is that this is a history that most countries in Western Europe share. Um, everyone from Britain you know, to, to Greece in Europe lived under Roman control and for a long period of time. Um, I think Britain was there for the shortest and was under Roman control for almost 400 years. So this is part of the history of all of those regions. And that's part of why it is a history that still lives in a meaningful way in the European consciousness. Um, I think for other people, this is a story that has been so powerfully told by Europeans and others that it has come to resonate, even though, you know, in the United States, we were never under the Roman Empire. They didn't even know that North America existed. Um, but it's a story that has become so resonant that in a way we identify with it as well. Um, the Romans were very, very good at creating these institutions that celebrated their history and they integrated the celebration of that history into their religious activities, um, into the medieval church, uh, and into the way that people constructed the stories of their own backgrounds, even when those people were no longer under Roman control. Uh, and so that gives it a resonance um, that I think has allowed people outside of Northern and Western Europe uh, to, to consider how the story might relate to their world around them. Um, but I don't know that the Romans, the Romans did this, I think, for longer than other people. Uh, and I think they maybe therefore did it better than some other people simply because there was more time for the story to take hold and for institutions to develop around it. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything particularly unique about trying to tell a national story in the way the Romans did. Um, but I do think the space the Romans controlled the institutions they developed and the amount of time that they were telling this story gave it a grounding and kind of implanted it into the national consciousness of lots of different people. Uh, and this is, I think, why the story resonates so strongly. And you're right that the last installment of Gibbon's 
uh, decline and fall appeared in 1788, less than a year before the French Revolution blew up the European Republic of States that Gibbon idealized, especially in his uh, writing. It is not surprising then that most people have forgotten that Gibbon's decline and fall uh, set out both to narrate Rome's history and to offer a way to explain the present. So what does Gibbon's inability to explain the present with his modern Europe Europe collapsing right about the time his last installment was published (laughs) reveal about his decline and fall? Is his history based on a faulty premise that undermines his retelling of the decline and fall of Rome? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most interesting moments um, in the kind of story of Roman decline, because what Gibbon is doing is he's writing a history of Rome that also relates to his own world. Um, but the world doesn't exist uh, almost immediately after Gibbon publishes this. So we can read something like um, like Bruni uh, and understand that Bruni's talking about the Florentine Republic and say, well, that, you know, that's interesting, but I'm not a Florentine and that Republic doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, that's a nice sort of historical footnote. But for Gibbon, the world really stops existing almost immediately when the book appears. And so Gibbon's story becomes this thing that looks like a history that exists just as a history, without any kind of grounding in the historical moment when Gibbon is actually writing. And perversely, that gives it a resonance that anyone can tap into. Um, You know, Ronald Reagan is talking about Gibbon in the 1970s as a kind of model for what we can think about in the United States and a model for how we can think about representative democracy being challenged. Gibbon has no interest in representative democracy, but because we don't see what Gibbon was actually interested in, because the world that he describes and the world that he's trying to um, justify through the use of Roman background and Roman narrative, uh, it, it just isn't there. This becomes just a universal story. And this is why the kind of plug and play of I'm bothered by X, so I'm going to use Rome to explain why we should stop doing it um, becomes so interesting and such a feature of how we in the 20th and 21st century have thought about Rome. Um, The story just looks like a story. It doesn't look like something that's underpinning a political system or an argument for a particular political way of behaving. And so Gibbon becomes disembodied from a historical context in a large part because that historical context stopped mattering almost immediately after Gibbon tried to explain it. When you were writing about uh, Reagan's Eisenhower College speech that he gave, making this these allusions to Rome, he was actually specifically uh, pointing out Rome as reasons to push forward his policies. You write that all of those, uh, that historical evidence, none of it was true. So how can a speech that makes a historical comparison that is inaccurate be a piece of genius, as you call it? Why does the historical evidence not matter to the point that Reagan can simply dismiss it out of hand? That speech is incredible. I mean, Reagan, we it all really, know Reagan. I just want to point out just one, real quick, it really is incredible. And your description of that is a really important part of the book when it comes to how it, Roman history applies to contemporary, what's happening right now. So again, I'm sorry for interrupting, but it really is a fascinating part of your book. Oh, and, and the thing that Reagan understood, I mean, Reagan never read Gibbon. He read someone who read Gibbon. And that's where he gets the ideas from this for this speech. But what Reagan is talking about in, in 1970 is he's saying, in essence, well, OK, in Gibbon's in Gibbon's narration, Rome does really well for about 200 years. And then these issues start rising up of, you know, people going and not learning things, but learning to be critical and people challenging the way that um, 
Romans wore their hair and dressed and uh, they start using cosmetics and uh, they start wanting to not fight anymore. And this is not based in Roman history at all. It's based in somebody interpreting Gibbon that Reagan read. But what Reagan understands is this way of talking about the American present, as Reagan says, um, he says that at this moment in Roman history, about 200 years into the history of Rome, these, these things were all there, but the empire was still strong. And what Rome shows in Reagan's interpretation is all of these features that you see around you that make you kind of uncomfortable. Well, you know, they aren't really making our society collapse right now, but they will make our society collapse. And so Rome had all of these things when it was about 200 years old, too, and Rome was still strong. And it ignored these things because it was still strong. Um, but all of these things about bad public education and people dressing in strange ways and people not wanting to fight in wars, that undermines Rome so that over time, uh, those conditions eliminate the power of the Roman state to do the things that it was doing well. And so what Reagan is saying in a very, very brilliant way is he's saying in 1970, you see all these things, you don't like them. Our society is still strong. And we can keep it strong if right now we address those problems. But if we don't address those things that make you uncomfortable right now, 50 years down the line, things will be catastrophic. And Rome shows us this. And so for Reagan, Rome represents a kind of fortune telling where he's able to put his finger on all of the things that conservatives in the 1960s were upset about and say that, yes, you can look around and the economy's doing well and, um, you know, things seem like the United States is still strong and still vibrant, but these things that make you uncomfortable, they are kind of small, uh, small things that are undermining very subtly the things that make us strong. And in 50 years, you're going to see the results of this. So let's stop it now. And Rome is the way that he justifies that preemptive attack on things that make him uncomfortable. One last question for you, Edward. We've been speaking with historian Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Don't forget to check out Edward's writing also at the Los Angeles Review of Books, including his most recent article, Has America Lost Its First Principles? One last question for you, Edward, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that for nearly two millennia, Christian churches have offered liturgical commemorations of Roman saints, church fathers, and Christian Roman emperors spread regularly across the year. Mosaics and paintings depict martyrs, theologians, and exemplary emperors like Constantine and Justinian. Sermons explain who these figures were and why they mattered. Hymns encourage Christians to speak in the voice of these ancient Roman figures and experience the Roman past as participants in it. So within the Christian faith, Edward, has the decline and fall of the Roman Empire become a faith to be believed instead of an accurate retelling of the history of Rome? Wow, okay. <laughs> um, I think that what we see is exactly that. I mean, the history of Rome for people in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, the Oriental Orthodox Churches, the um, Roman Catholic Church, the history of Rome is something that is also tied up in the history of the church. Uh, and so in many ways, the success of the Christian project uh, is something that is also linked to some degree with the success of the Roman imperial project. But all of those churches still survive and the empire doesn't. 
and so there is a much more nuanced way of thinking about that Roman past now than there was when, say, you were in Hagia Sophia listening to a liturgy at the height of, of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, because in those moments, the church and the state buttress each other, right? The state is supporting the church and the church is therefore supporting the state. And there are moments where there's tension between them, but they work in a kind of symbiotic way. Um, but that's not true anymore because there is no Roman state anymore. Uh, and so I think what we have is a more critical way of thinking about that Roman past in those commemorations. So they are still commemorating um, Constantine and um, you know Roman figures from that Roman past, um, but it's in a way that isn't as living as it would have been if you lived in a state that is still connected to the empire of Constantine. Um, and so the churches, I think, do still use this Roman past. They do still use this uh, liturgical connection that people in the present feel with that Roman past, but it's a connection that has been kind of divorced from a political context simply because when that connection was initially made, it was used to justify both the presence of a church and the connection that church has with the state. And that state doesn't exist anymore. So the, there has been a kind of disaggregation or a separation of the church from that Roman state in a way that I think uh, allows these stories to become a little more stories and a little less um, acts of kind of political loyalty to an institution. Edward, thank you so much for being on our show today. Edward, again, is Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Take care, Edward. Thanks. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Sorry, not tomorrow's. Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live now every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. His podcast at the same place shortly after on Patreon tomorrow. I'm going to wrap up my report from my vacation at Cottage on Lake with the horrors of how the place has been modernized, but only kind of as the dock is so not secured that during a windstorm it flew 50 feet and landed on the neighbor's dock. Do you know how hard it is to get away from it all when for the first time you suddenly have Wi-Fi at the lake? We will also be sharing one of our very first interviews we did following 9-11 on Afghanistan, taking us back 20 years to find out what we and our guests were saying about what appeared to be a run-up to an inevitable war with Afghanistan and inexplicably Iraq as well. So we will be playing our December 1st, 2001 interview with Tamina Faryal of the Revolutionary Women of Afghanistan, which has been promoting women's rights and secular democracy in Afghanistan since long before Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or the Mujahideen. Dating all the way back to 1977, in the past, its leadership has been targeted for assassination because of their work. So with the U.S. going to war in Afghanistan back in 2001, we thought we should hear from the women who the Bush administration was claiming to be protecting by going to war which is something the mainstream media was not doing. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our Friday Patreon podcast, which airs at 10 a.m. Chicago time live at patreon.com slash this is hell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what is Chuck's password? So we have a few answers. I believe I am... Uh 
wading through this Facebook morass. Morass. Yes. yes. Um, Fabio answers. Yeah. Missed my button 2021. 20, <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> MJG answers my girly. <laughs> Adam P answers big doinkin weed smoker 420 <laughs> underscore ACAB. <laughs> Martin, Martin F has three guesses. <laughs> oh, um, you know, I, I was like totally misreading this one when I was uh, checking it out before it says, the, his first answer is crapitalism yeah. 69. Yes. The <laughs> uh, second one is my demons on my butt 420. And the last one is Mo- gnomes gone insane. <laughs> Exclamation point. Yes. Those are all very good touchstones. Uh, flying needle. His answer to our this week's question from hell is what is Chuck's password? Oops, I missed my button 666. Oh, man. I haven't been missing my button for a couple of years, okay? Chris L. answers 96 Straft AE. Straft A. I think that's like a weird gamer thing. Kelly H. kind of confounded me for a moment. Her answer is, it's so hot, but she wrote it in Japanese characters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which was pretty pretty brilliant. <laughs> Sparrow Strawberry answers bitter blind broke, but it's like all using unconventional right, letters, right? So. Numbers and stuff. And Kim G has her answer is. Kitty Litter 5000, <laughs> which is like my favorite one right now. <laughs> so we have some more from Twitter, but we'll get those later. Okay. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us, but you got to send it now. So uh, do that. Richard, I know you have FA on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Hey. One more time. The souls of Pinker Folk. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is the drink. There are more white people living in poverty in the USA than any other ethnic group. Not exactly, though. About 67 to 70% of people living in poverty are white, but that includes white people of Latino, Latina, Latinx identification. Somewhere between 34 to 40 million people live below the poverty line in the USA. And even just non-Latin white people still make up a whopping 40% of those living in poverty. Steven Pinker, the famous popular writer of questionable brain candy books, tends to rejigger all the figures he uses, inflating or at best leaning toward the largest estimates of populations living in violence and poverty in past times, while both theoretically minimizing and leaning toward the minimal numbers of current rates of violence and poverty in order to prove his point that human history represents a trend of progress in material existence for all. So forgive me for being a little squishy while using the figures I've given above, but as I do so, I'll be transparent about the process. White folk of northern extraction make up 40% of the impoverished in the U.S. 40%? That's almost 50%. 
That's roughly their percentage of the entire U.S. population as a whole, give or take. There are about 40 million people in the USA living below the poverty line, and the poverty line is widely acknowledged to be a laughable gauge of what constitutes poverty, constructed as it is by people who aren't poor, so there's probably more poor people than official definitions indicate. I'm going to suggest, with a pinker-esque fungibility of reported statistics, that about 70 million people in the USA, about 20% of the population, are poor, including the functionally poor, which means people who have to pay half or more of their income for shelter, who opt out of necessary visits to health professionals for lack of funds, who have trouble affording healthy food, who have no choice but to work more than one full-time job or work one full-time job that sucks, who have to work gig jobs but think they're not poor because they sell their homemade jewelry on Etsy on the side, who go without medication, have severely limited, if any, time to themselves, or are burdened by snowballing debt due to predatory lending or predatory credit or punitive civic systems of fines. Easily one in five people in the wealthiest military and financial empire in history is poor. They are vulnerable to being coerced into working unsafe and unfairly compensated jobs, vulnerable to being swayed by propaganda that says they're better off than they actually are, vulnerable to being manipulated to disregard or even denounce class consciousness that would lead to solidarity in favor of accepting narratives that pit them against those with whom they have, for the most part, common grievances. Let's call that latter stuff the Pinker Propaganda. Although he's not necessarily the origin of it, nor is he its sole or most clever practitioner. There's a big surge of optimism right now because Beyonce is wearing the Tiffany diamond that was dug up by black miners in South Africa and stolen from them within minutes. There's also something related to that story about a Basquiat painting and some millions of dollars for historically black colleges and universities. Some of the same people who adulate this as a significant step forward, and it is for representation of black people among the very wealthy and self-congratulatorily philanthropic, the same people will also wax frustrated that black people in the USA don't seem to have liberated themselves from the racist system of economic and authoritarian oppression. Well, Welcome to the world where the rich are held up as a great example, but the poor keep getting shafted. And if you're shafted, there's nothing wrong with you that a role model can't fix. You're just relatively new at this, people of color. Don't worry. You'll soon be happy just worshipping the wealthy people you think you could be someday with enough hard work and all that cognitive dissonance will fade into the past. Hey, that does sound like progress, doesn't it? I could say Beyonce has joined the ranks of the Pinkers. And why not? Malcolm Gladwell's a Pinker and he's black. There's no rule that you can't be both black and a Pinker. What do Pinkers get out of their self-congratulations, exaggerations, half-truths, and Pollyannaism? It's not difficult to see that they either imagine they gain something or actually gain something because they go to such efforts to flog the narrative that civilization is at least on a path, however slow, to improvement for everyone. The scientific data and observable evidence is that the Earth's temperature is increasing. 
which will continue to increase the number and severity of catastrophic weather events, uh, hinder food production, create forced migration and geopolitical strife. That should go a long way toward negating the fairy tale of an ever-ennobling humanity. But maybe the Pinkers are those members of the bourgeoisie who are simply comfortable and want to believe that in the long run, their comfort doesn't come at the expense of the dignified survival of others. No one need question whether their comfort is justified because in the fullness of time, life is getting better and better. No need to point to the class forces creating rape slaves and wage slaves, homelessness, capitalist violence, imperial commandeering of the resources of the earth. Most of humanity is doing pretty well. And each year, more and more become members of that majority. Have some patience, silly. Yes, injustice is terrible. And you should dance and sing about subverting it. But it obviously takes many centuries to improve conditions. We're all doing the best we can. And Beyonce gets to be the first black woman to wear what looks like a crystal of solidified urine. Well, as forests burn. The atmosphere's CO2 content increases. Species die off at a rate unprecedented since that last great extinction of 65 million years ago. And arable land, along with forests and oceanic carbon sinks, shrivel to nothing. The cheery outlook of the comfortable grows less and less persuasive. Meanwhile, I'm pushing opposite propaganda. I don't think conditions are getting better and better with each succeeding century. Some things are getting better. A vastly greater percentage of people are literate, but a vastly greater percentage of people now have access to misleading information and plain old attractive lies. So it's entirely possible that whatever was good about increased literacy is annihilated by the crap information people are consuming. I must be getting something out of peddling my doomsday scenario, right? Why am I pushing my interpretation of history? Why do I think my spin on the fate of humanity is even worth sharing? I'm not making big bucks from it. I don't get to wear an amulet of crystallized pee because of it. I'm not easing my mind, justifying my comfortable existence, unless you think being convinced the human world, best case scenario, soon will be firmly in one of its most tragic phases ever, is somehow comfortable. I guess despite the fact that humanity is on a downward arc these days, these doofus days, these trash fire days, despite the fact that humans are the buffoons of the cosmos, as uncomfortable as it is to admit it, I am human. And lying to myself and to you about our current conditions would make me feel not human. Why is feeling human important to me? I don't know. Maybe it makes me comfortable to feel part of this species, even a disdaining, finger-wagging, pitying, angry part. Maybe I just need to feel like I belong. Maybe I'm just another brand of pinker. The fact is, though, we're in for a hell of a turd storm in the coming decades, and we brought it on ourselves, pinkers notwithstanding. Pinkers are in for an unpleasant surprise if they think humans are going to get us out of this mess before there's a whole lot of suffering. Pinkers should join us humans and get prepared for the worst, or at least support the efforts at fighting the system of normalized, selfish wealth accumulation and materialistic growth that keeps us going down the tubes. But perhaps that is not in their nature. Perhaps one's soul transforms in some horrible way when one becomes a pinker. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, we're up against the clock, so I got to let you go. But in the meantime... Wait a minute. Richard doesn't have any kids. 
Stay beautiful. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Richard, please share with us the rest of this week's uh, answers to the question from Hal, which is, what is Chuck's password? I will do that. All right, then. We have some from Twitter. All right. Rich Men Rule, his answer is, hashtag burn oil to turn earth into hell. Okay. <laughs> Alec answers, BMV2ZXJ. I B M R P B M C equal sign. Okay. And Chrome the Moon answers B M I N A A I N A H R R T Y X J. Okay. I think they're both gamer things. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe not. Maybe they're just messing with us. Anything else? Yes, sir. Tiny tiny kitty cat answers <laughs> Hail Satan. <laughs> tiny tiny kitty cat. Chris T, his answer is, or there, he, yeah, so he there, uh, whatever. Hell, this is one. Okay. Valentine F answers W7YMO5T. Okay. I think W7Y is like Wyoming call then sign most, or something. Uh, yes. Eat fart, si- eat fart 69. Is uh, surprisingly did not answer eat fart sixty nine, <laughs> but his real answer is NPR sucks one. Okay. Dan B answers national comma national comma national comma <laughs> national beer. Okay. And Alec answers thank you Chuck exclamation point. <laughs> Phil O answers four twenty Mertz sixty nine. Sheesh, he's got a recurring theme. Yes. Last one. Ham S answers. Long one. Colon. Terror. Terrorism is the surgical strike capability of the oppressed. Sixty-four exclamation <laughs> point. So the answers I liked most were Gregory saying Henry Kissinger's birthday is my password. Uh, Paulo saying everybody five stupid. Everybody's stupid. Micah saying so to what extent. Fabio saying, missed my button 2021 because he was the first person who said, missed my button. Neil saying, forgot Chuck's password, but I can answer the security questions to reset. Who is your best friend? My dealer. Where is your favorite place to visit? Lansing, Illinois. What is your favorite color? Have no idea. So that makes this week's winner. Boy, I really like Neil's answer, except it's not a password. We're asking for a password. So Mika, because you're such a for pointing it out that I always say to what extent you are the winner of this week's question from hell with your answer to what is Chuck's password Mika said to what extent all you have to do Mika is send us your mailing address and tell us what item at this is hell.com slash or what item at this is hell.com when you click on support when you see all of the merchandise for this is hell just pick which one you want and send us your mailing address and we'll get it in the mail as quickly as possible richard i don't think we have anybody uh, scheduled for next week yet do we not that i know of yeah i don't think we do we start every week's live streaming shows here at this is hell dot this is hell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure and this week's hangover cure is a toasted or grilled sandwich with your choice of cold cuts and cheese Our guests this week included Gio Maher, author of A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete, writer and photographer and researcher Martin Van Baylert, co-founder of the Afghanistan Analyst Network, and today's guest, historian Edward J. Watts, author of The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. 
Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood, Egon Sheely, and Jess Lipka for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another Moment of Truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when we'll be sharing, wrapping up my report on my annual summer vacation to Cottage on Lake, and we'll be sharing our December 1st, 20. 20- one interview with Tamina Faryal of the Revolutionary Women of Afghanistan, which was opposed to the eventually failed U.S. war in Afghanistan from the beginning. So at the starting of today's show, I mentioned that I have a really terrible, awful, horrific question I need to ask all of you. And I need your input. This is worse than any question from hell we have ever asked on air. And that is, With the Delta variant surging, with the Lambda variant likely on its way, a variant that vaccinations do not do as good of a job protecting us against, with the city of Chicago last Friday ordering an indoor mask mandate, except when you are eating or drinking, which is just stupid, is it responsible for us to have our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show in three and a half weeks on Saturday, September 18th at the bar downstairs from this here studio, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Our parties always have three acts of musical performers as well as an art opening in the gallery just outside our studio. But bands are not playing indoors yet, and even outdoor concerts are being canceled. I was supposed to be seeing the residents this weekend, but they canceled because one of their members got stuck in Europe under... COVID protocols. And all of our parties, we always offer free food. I know that there has not been any evidence of transmission through food, but between eating and drinking, this means a lot of not wearing masks. There's no guarantee everyone attending the party will have been vaccinated, and I'm not going to be checking vaccination cards. I certainly do not want to put Carrie's Lounge at risk of facing penalties for not not following the city's COVID safety mandate. So, Should we still have our anniversary party on September 18th or, oh, good Lord, should we reschedule for July 23rd, 2022? Please email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us what you think we should do. We really need your help on this one. I've spoken to medical professionals, to family and friends, and now we need to know what you think. Email me about whether we should have the party or not. At Chuck at thisishell.com, and we'll, we will be making an announcement one way or the other on Monday's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, and today incredibly bitter because of the situation with our party and COVID. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's why sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, and focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>